Welcome to Paranormal Almanac. With your host, Kurt Sandvig. That's right, I'm your host, Kurt Sandig, and on this edition of Paranormal Almanac, let's head back to the Appalachians. But first, as always, we have shout-outs. Shout-outs going out to all the patrons. Head on over to patreon.com slash paranormalalmanac. Patrons, you have another new surprise coming up very soon. All right, shout-outs going out to Kelly Joe, Menace the Beast. I gotta stop and say a very, very special shout-out to Menace the Beast. He sent me... One of the coolest things that I've gotten sent, and I got a lot of cool stuff sent to me from amazingly talented listeners, but uh, he sent me this mask. I'll show it to you on the next live episode. I already put it up on the Facebook pages and stuff. It is freaking cool. All right, let's get back to the shout-outs. Shout-outs to Kelly Joe, Menace the Beast, Kick-Ass Magic Robot Webcomic, Lionel, Sandy, Paige, Kosh, Sean, Andrew, Tasha, Scott, Andrea, Devin, Melody, Ricardo, Vicky, Christopher, Vanessa, Marisol, Liam, Roger, Michael, Terminal Animal, Alicia, Becca, Elizabeth, Voitech, Sherry, Art Muffin, Trudy, Tim, Kenneth, Paul, Ricardo, Ian, Jen, Alexandra, George, Connie, Seth, Jason, Cindy, Kim, Ashley, what's that? Loki, Carrie, Ezram, Robin, Will, Lauren and Phil Mangano, Russell, Donald, April, Seth, Isabel, Audra, Dorian, Cindy, Bob, The, Sean, Bishop, Paula, Jerry, Leo, Scostin, Lindsay, Hahn, Megan, Aaron, Amy, Jeff, T, Harley, Suzanne, Joe, Lawrence, Lauren Strawn. Hey, it's a Strawn on here now. Yay. Veronica, Autumn, J. Mark, Manning, Carolyn, Martin, Jade, Nanashi, Chuck, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson, Juliana, Dan, Laura, Pitt, Laura Pitts, and Gamer Fan. With two special shout-outs, as always, to Joe Teague and Stitch. All right, before I keep going, though, I wanted to get, uh, someone asked me what the P.O. box that I have, what is it? What's the address? So let me get that to you guys. If you guys want to send something over to me, Paranormal Almanac or Kurt Sandvig at 1812 West Burbank Boulevard, number 7102, Burbank, California, 91506. If you need that read again, rewind now. All righty, with that... Let's get right on in to some kick-ass paranormal news. Paranormal news. There was this one night we were out in the field, and suddenly there was this incredibly bright light descending from the sky. Next thing we knew, we were in this big white room, and standing in front of me was this slimy two-legged creature with these wide lizard-like eyes across its face. Thank you so much to Elliot Van Wick for that one. That is a freaking awesome paranormal news. 
intro. If you want to send your own, if you're a talented musician, artist, whatever you want, and you want to send over your Paranormal News bumper music, please, please do send it over to paranormalalmanac at gmail.com. And I'll make sure I give you a shout out. I didn't give him, I didn't give him a shout out last week. I completely forgot. And thankfully, another person that has sent me a ton of awesome bumper music, uh, a guy named Buzz Lee. Love his stuff as well. Freaking awesome guy. Was like, hey, uh, who, who did that one? Because that's really cool. Thank you. Thank you for keeping me accountable to give shout outs to the people who deserve the shout outs who are making this awesome stuff for me. So thanks, Buzz. And thanks, Elliot. That was freaking awesome. All right. The first story in paranormal news. Is the space age metal implant in this ancient skull for real? If an alien civilization far more advanced than anything on Earth existed thousands of years ago, would they have embedded a piece of metal inside someone's skull? That is at least what it looks like. And an undoubtedly human skull from Peru was donated to the Museum of Osteology in Oklahoma from a private collection. It's now the object of controversy, though, because of a mysterious metal implant. The elongated skull almost looks alien, but head binding was a common practice in Peru and other parts of the ancient world. I will say that, yeah, a lot of believers say that the reason there was head binding is because they wanted to look like their gods, ancient gods, aliens, and all that, but this is a human skull. It has not yet been carbon dated or examined up closely by archaeologists, though. Whether the implant is authentic, though, is what's raising questions. Now, it goes on to talk about trepanation. If you don't know what that is, that's when they drill a hole to relieve pressure. Uh, they say forgeries have been pretty easy to recognize because they made no sense in terms of... No sense in terms of surgical treatments. I'm highly dubious. I'm highly dubious. It's probably a cranium accessorized to increase its value to a collector. And it is a very bizarre elongated skull. It is really cool to look at. And it does have some kind of metal filigree on the side of its skull. They said that they had previously seen skulls that could have been forgeries in a Peruvian, Peruvian museum. And that particular museum also has a reputation for fakes. In one of these skulls that can be observed, the trepanation was real based on the linear way that the opening was cut. But it was then filled with gold. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Trepanation, trepanation, trepanation. This skull does show multiple fracture lines that mark a serious blow to the head, although he could have survived the injury as marked by healing of the margins of the fracture. Unfortunately, if there is a trepanation under the metal, it's not visible, so it's unclear if there is, in fact, evidence of surgery. Um, oh, here's the front. I didn't realize that a front photo of it. Yeah, it's crazy cool looking. I'll give them that. Um, they said x-rays probably won't help because it won't penetrate the metal and show what's underneath it. If the metal could somehow be delicately removed... It would be helpful, but that might damage the skull. So the answer is still buried in the past, basically, as to why the hell this particular skull has that metal right there. But I thought it was very cool. Nothing definitive to be like, it was aliens. Nope, sorry. Up next in paranormal news, mystery of mummified mermaid with human face and tail is probed by scientists. And I like this one because, well, frankly... It's because my mom sent it to me. She thought I'd be really interested in this story, and, and she was right. There's a very cool mummy mermaid. It's crazy looking. It looks to me like a um, it looks to me like, uh, like a monkey, uh, like a monkey in a fishtail. And the reason I say that is because there has been instances in the past of them doing that, just stitching together half monkey, half fishtail to make a mermaid. But... Researchers in Japan have begun tests on a 300-year-old mermaid mummy 
to try and trace its origins. The bizarre-looking object, which may have been produced as an item for export to Europe, is believed to date from the early 1700s. It's 30 centimeters tall, with a tail and hands raised to its screaming face. It's been preserved in a box at a temple in Okayama Prefecture in the southern part of Japan's Honshu Island, but until now its exact origins have remained unknown. Prefecture? Prefecture. Prefecture. I don't know. It doesn't matter. The mummified object, which appears to have nails and teeth, hair on its head, and scales on its lower body, has been sent to a CT scan at the veterinary hospital of Kurashiki University of Science and the Arts. They said that the box it was found in contained a note claiming that the item had been caught in a fishing net in the Pacific Ocean at some point between 1736 and 1741. The dried mermaid was also said to have been kept by a family and then passed to another before it was acquired by a temple, which put it on display for uh, about four decades ago. They said they found the object while studying Kyoko Sato, a Sato, a Japanese natural historian who researched mysterious creatures. He said he did not believe it was a real mermaid, but may have stead, may have been made for export to Europe for a special events in Japan. However, until recently, detailed examination of its origins have never taken place. Uh, mummified mermaids are thought to have been used as objects of worship in Japan over the period. That's crazy. I didn't know that. The head priest at the temple said, we have worshipped it, hoping it would help alleviate the coronavirus pandemic, if even only slightly. Wow, that's a bizarre sentence to think about, a mummified mermaid. I hope the, re the research project can leave records for future generations. Uh, so we're waiting on the, the details. Those are going to be published in the autumn. I'm going to keep an eye out for this, and I'll, I'll give you that, uh, that update as well. Um, just looking at it, no. I think I could make this. I really do. I think I could make this and maybe, maybe possibly make a better. It's like the Fiji mermaid. That's the one that was half monkey and half fish just, just sewn together. It looks a lot, lot like that. All right, this, one, uh, this next one on here, it comes from my home state. Now, they haven't invited me yet, so bug them if you want to get me at their home show. I'm, I'm really interested in it. I even reached out to them and was like, hey, this sounds very cool and right up my alley. And they said, oh, you should buy a ticket. And I said, no, no, I do a top 100 paranormal podcast. I would like to be, you know, represented at it. Nothing, no response at all. But it's called Maparacon, the 12th annual Michigan Paranormal Convention, August 25th through the 27th. Again, I'm very excited about this. If you guys are in the Michigan area, even without me going to it, Check it out. Honestly, go and check it out. It's It seems like it's going to be one hell of a ticket to get. It says the 2022 Michigan Paranormal Convention will bring the biggest names in the paranormal industry, minus Kurt, to Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan for the 12th time. On August 25th through the 27th at the Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan's Casino Dreammakers Theater. Wow, that's a long title. Experts and television stars will be on hand to cover such topics as paranormal investigating, psychic powers, demonology, Ufology. Come see the biggest names speak on the hottest topics, the paranormal. Uh, yeah, look, they, they say tickets are selling out quickly. So are hotels. Make sure you book your ticket and your hotel if you want to do it and do it quickly. But again, I'm not getting paid for this. I'm not even getting invited to it. But I think it is amazing sounding. And if you got the chance to go to it, I think you should go to it. I really do. I'm trying to find out how much tickets are for you while I'm talking, and I can't. Aha, here we go. Let's try this. Weekend paranormal passes are only $129. That's not bad at all. For a full weekend pass, that's really good. 
the VIP weekend passes are sold out. The Supernatural VIP passes are sold out. The Thursday day pass is 75, Friday 75, Saturday 75. So great, great prices, great event. I mean, it's got a ton of people. I was trying to find, where is it? Events maybe? No, calendar events maybe? No, you're gonna have to go to the website. Um, but check it out. There, Everybody who's everybody in the paranormal community, except Kurt, is, is going to this. And I really think it's worthwhile. So check it out if you're in the area or are going to be in the area. Okay, up next in paranormal news, woman 29 has daily encounters with aliens after first UFO visit during the lockdown. Lily Nova, who's 29 from St. Louis, Missouri, said she had her first encounter with aliens in November 2020 after taking up astrophotography to cure her lockdown boredom. Says she's been uh, visited by aliens ever since. The encounters uh, didn't stop. She's claiming the extraterrestrial visits begin. Beings visit her on a daily basis now. They've approached her in all manner of spacecraft, including metallic ships, black triangles, and orbs that move in an unearthly way. She says she also knows what some of the beings look like. Uh, she started getting into astrophotography in the summer of 2020 during lockdown. My, my first encounter with aliens and UFOs was very intense. I went outside for some fresh air one night, and I immediately locked eyes with bright lights hovering over the neighborhood. I started investigating, and I realized it was a UFO. Seconds later, I looked away briefly, and when I looked back, there was a second craft, and it was much, much closer. I could actually see the triangular shapes of the craft. The UFOs did some impressive maneuvers to show me that it wasn't a regular aircraft before they disappeared ab above me. It really spooked me because aliens and UFOs aren't something I ever thought much about. It was a total reality-shifting experience. A couple of months later, I had my second encounter. After that, it kept happening more and more frequently, and now I'm having experiences daily. During my encounters, I've also been able to see what the beings look like. One of the first beings I saw was a girl with light blue skin. She had no hair, but she was very beautiful. She was wearing a skin-tight gray suit, and I saw her shipmate standing behind her in the same uniforms. I've also seen another group of beings with light blonde hair, fair and glowing skin, and bright blue eyes. I believe the second, I believe they send images of themselves to me through telepathy. I think they're erasing me. I think they're erasing me? Oh, I think I, I, it's, it's a misspell. I think they're easing me into an introduction as it would be such a shocking experience for any human to have an alien walk up to you. Uh, she's shared some of her photos. And, um, I mean, I don't want to put her down. They're weird photos. I don't know if I necessarily would call them UFO photos, but she seems to think they are. And, you know, I have nothing to disprove it. So why would I try? So let's move on to the next one. Here are 20 years of UFO sightings we got from the Canadian government. Vice World News obtained nearly 300 pages of documents through the Freedom of Information Act that includes strange sightings from pilots, soldiers, and police officers. That's right. 20 years of UFO reports have just been released because of the Freedom of Information Act. The 500-plus reports spanning nearly 300 pages consist of uh, dozens of strange sightings from commercial pilots, soldiers, and police officers. Uh, obtained by Vice World News through Canadian Freedom of Information Laws, the reports were made to federal transportation authorities as recently as last year when a Canadian military flight spotted a, a bright green flying object that flew into a cloud then disappeared over eastern Canada. Another unusual op uh, observation included the Newfoundland, Newfoundland police tracking two brightly colored flying objects in August of 2001 and a 2018 passenger flight from Alaska to Seattle that reported pulsating lights descending from 60,000 feet. I would be inclined categorically to believe anyone 
that reported something said former Canadian fighter pilot John Jacques Williams, there's no upside to making a false report. Williams is an aviation consultant who's also worked as a federal flight safety officer. There is definite reluctance to report stuff still. I'm amazed at the amount of material they sent you, and some of it is actually pretty good. There are loads of civilian sightings, too, such as large glowing objects seen hovering quite quickly back and forth just above tree lines near Petersburg, uh, Ontario, in January of 2011. One uncommonly long report even details a sighting that was confirmed by military radar. On the night of December 23, 2018, a fisherman in the Bay of Fundy and a woman at home in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia, both contacted a search and rescue center to report a light that was yellow, steady, and hovering high above the Atlantic Ocean. When the Royal Canadian Air Force personnel reviewed radar data from NORAD, the Joint Canadian-U.S. Air Defense Alliance, they said they observed three primary radar hits that correlated almost exactly to the time and the location of the sighting. So not Pluto, not Venus, not Jupiter, not any of that crap. There was something there, and it was picked up by radar. They said this is an area that has good, low-level radar coverage. There's no explanation to why there are only three points at all exactly 12,800 feet with no points leading up to them or continuing on at other altitudes. That is a cool one. They go on to say the best guess was independent radar hits on weather and not an actual airborne object, even though no threat report notes it was partly cloudy that night with good visibility, so that doesn't make any sense. They go on to say that less than an hour's drive from Yarmouth, the nearby fishing village of Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia, was the site of a 1967 mass sighting of a large luminous object that disappeared into the ocean. The reports also include previously unpublished documents on Canadian UFO cases covered in other sites, like the Alberta Air Traffic Controllers who spotted a solid bright light that appeared too fast to be any commercial aircraft on December 9th or December 2009, and a Manitoba police officer who filmed an unidentified bright yellow and orange light with their cruiser's dash cam in 2011. Finally, on April 2018, cargo flight from New York to Alaska that reported an object flying sporadically and moving at Mach 4 over northern Canada. Now it keeps going on and on, and I really mean keeps going on. I can't read all of this to you, but absolutely incredible. I'm going to delve more into this to see about doing a full episode about Canadian UFOs, new Canadian UFO reports, because again, some of the best ones I've seen in a quite a while done by military and pilots and the police, they have footage of it. They have radar contact that just appeared that high up, didn't go anywhere, didn't, you know, or originate from anywhere. That is cool. Alrighty, last up in paranormal news. This one is uh, this one definitely is one from one of the best continents on the planet, Australia. I'm looking at you. By the way, I, I, this is unre unrelated to anything paranormal, but I realize I'm late to this. But Mister In Between, oh my God, it's a fucking brilliant show. If you guys haven't watched Mister In Between, In Between, highly recommend it. It's not paranormal. It has nothing to do with this podcast at all. It's just it's Australian. That's what made me think of it, but Australia, I absolutely love Australia. I love that I've got fans in Australia. I can't wait to go there one day, but, uh, but anyhow, this next one comes from Australia, from the land down under. What is a Yowie in search of Australia's own Bigfoot legend? They say Americans might have Bigfoot, but here in Australia, hundreds of witnesses have claimed to have encounters with their very own version, the Yowie. 
Now, while there may be not any hard proof of its existence, reports of these sightings stretch back to the earliest days of European colonization and continue to this day. For Queensland, Queensland man Dean Harrison, an encounter he said he had in 1995 after returning home on Mount Tambourine in the Gold Host hinterland late one evening, sparked a hunt that has lasted decades. In the darkness behind the swamp, there was this noise, booming and guttural. It made my hair stand on end. On top of the noise, it was bipedal. I could hear it walking, trading through this treading. I think it's supposed to be treading, not trading. Treading through the swamp. Then it starts to rip foliage out of the ground and throw it through the air. Now, he wasn't keen on taking a closer look at whatever it was, not that time, but later he concluded what he had heard was a bipedal creature with a massive vocal capacity and hands. They go on to describe the Yowie, but it's Bigfoot. You know, you know what it is. It's Bigfoot. They say bigger than a gorilla, uh, 1.5 to 2 meters tall or larger usually, very powerful body, very muscular chest with the head perched on the shoulders, a bit like a muscular footballer, you know, Bigfoot. But they, they, uh, they show some photos, this guy, Dean Harrison, um, of evidence of Yowie and Yowie footprints. They talk about the First Nations people. They said he was known as Yahoo, the hairy man, Pangarlangu, or Yowie. Uh, they go on to talk about the history and the folklore of Yowie and the Yowie sightings. And they said that there's more and more Yowie sightings every year. They're not going away. They're not going um They're not getting less and less or fewer and fewer. They're not going away. They're getting more and more, actually. Um, I, wanna, I don't want to read all of it to you. There was a part that I wanted, though. They talk about the Australian Yowie Research Center that Dean Harrison did. And he says he regularly goes on expeditions up and down the East Coast following reports of witness sightings, whether it be of the Yowie itself or footprints or other assumed evidence of its presence. His extensive website includes histories, Photographs of the huntings, expeditions basically, and reports of witness sightings from across the country. Although most of his efforts are focused on the eastern seaboard, particularly the Gold Coast, Hinterland, and the Blue Mountains. They go on to talk about uh, him using thermal cameras and technology and getting closer and closer to figuring out what a Yowie is and not shoot a Yowie. Don't fucking shoot Yowie. Alrighty, let's close up the old paranormal news bag and... Uh, yeah, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. All righty, we are back. And this one is one that I've been wanting to do ever since I did the last Smoky Mountains episode because there is so much bizarre stuff going on in and around the Appalachian Mountains. And in case you want to say, you know, you're supposed to pronounce it Appalachian, no. I was told after the last one, it's Appalachian, Appalachian. So if I'm still saying it wrong, don't, don't, don't correct me. Just let me think I'm, you know, high and mighty and got it right this time. And you might say, hey, look, I don't remember the other episodes. Well, I've talked about the Appalachians a few times, including a patron-only episode. So you have to listen to them all, including the patron episodes, to hear everything. All righty. Why am I talking about the Smoky Mountains, the Appalachians, the biggest mountain chain in America? Why am I talking about them? Well, because they're weird. And I mean, just about everything about them is weird. And lately, more and more hikers have either gone missing or have come back with insane stories from the Appalachian Trail. The stories that they really are talking about lately have been 
feral human beings. So let's start there. Let's start with them. Now, this feral human being I thought was actually kind of a new thing, maybe in the last, like, 100 years kind of a thing. No, this thing goes back away. I'm talking way back. How old? Well, the first article I could find about feral humans in those mountains comes from 1896. That's when Forest and Stream magazine did a piece about four hunters that came across a, quote, disheveled naked human. Now, I will say I couldn't actually find the article to read. I couldn't find an an, an edition of Field and Stream from 1896. So I'm only going to go on based on the, um, you know, the, what the sources are quoting from the article. But it does seem to be real. It does seem to be legit. It did seem to happen. I've got nothing to doubt that Field and Stream did this article back in 1896. Uh, so since then, pretty much every decade has had reports of naked, disheveled human beings eating dead animals raw or stalking hikers. Hundreds of witnesses all seem to have the same general descriptions since 1896. Human-like. Malformed facial features, including like a bumpy or knotty forehead. Matted hair. Nude. They eat raw flesh. And they all have a putrid, skunk-like smell. Now, an eyewitness from only two years ago said they came across this one, and it wasn't too deep into the trail. It was over by a waterfall. They said they saw a nude man squatting, eating a dead deer, untamed beard, beard, lumpy forehead, big nose, and almost a demonic, putrid smell to him. So I'm assuming they mean almost like a sulfur putrid smell, but they don't really go into detail, so I'm just kind of guessing there. Now, here's a quick piece from Smokies.com, which is all about the Smoky Mountains, the area that we'll be talking a lot about. I don't want to read the whole piece to you, though, so I'm going to just jump down to... Uh, now, I'm not going to talk about the disappearance of Dennis Martin. You can look into that. It's a scary story. Uh, here we go. Feral humans in the Smoky Mountains. Over the years, this account made it to the Internet where charlatans, shysters, and hucksters, hucksters have teamed with conspiracy theorists and other curious folks who form wild theories about feral humans in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park regarding what really happened to Dennis Martin. Again, I'm not getting into that story too deep. I think I brushed upon it in the... Uh, missing People uh, National Park episode. But one of the most popular theories involved wild men. That's right, feral humans who live in the mountains and go about snatching livestock and children at night. Now, there are videos, not of wild men, of course, but of authoritative-sounding people discussing the wild man and the FBI cover-up to hunt the wild man. That's when it really kind of goes down the rabbit hole. Kurt here, I'm going to pause for a second. That's when this one really kind of goes down the rabbit hole because there's all these people, these experts, these internet YouTube experts that say that they knew about the wild men and that the FBI actually like went to the local hunters and went like, hey, we'll give you money if you go like a bounty to go and catch all these wild men. And they go on to talk about the wild men or little big feet as they're called. They've been living in the wild for so long that they've just become feral. Um you know, cannibalistic, feral human beings. Uh, let me continue on here. Others speculate the wild men aren't so quite that feral. They could be descendant of mountain people who went deep into the forest before there was a park, and like the tribes of the rainforest, operate outside the realms of society. I will say that more and more th looking into this, like the deeper I get looking into this, that seems to be the consensus of people who are actually down there. 
that, yeah, these wild men exist. These feral men exist, but they aren't like some like primitive lost Neanderthal or whatever kind of tribe. They're just people that were like, you know what? Fuck society. Uh, some ex vets, they think they, they, they've talked to um, that have just kind of gone away from society and gone deeper and deeper into the woods and become wild men. Uh, I don't know if they're actually, you know, eating children like this thing says, but that's what a lot of think people say. They say that some of the wild men speak English while others have their own language and still others were without a discernible speech. And uh, they talk about uh, Vietnam green, but it keeps going back and forth between like verifiable stuff from people who live in the area and hike and hunt and go out for like weeks on end hunting and then just idiots from YouTube that have never been to the Appalachian Trail. So I don't know why they're even talking about it. Let's see. And that's about it. They, yeah, that's about it. They, they, they do go on to say that there have been many people that have been spotted. So that part is real. But how feral they are is the questionable part of it. All right, next is a piece that someone put up on Reddit. Now, I know Reddit is not verifiable by any stretch, so, you know, grain of salt time, but they said, I'm on the North Carolina side of the Great Smoky Mountains, lived here my entire life. All of us here know what's in these woods and the mountains. Since the 30s or 40s, there have been feral wild men living in these mountains. They are fast. They will snatch livestock and snatch children. The FBI know it's it's why they do not get involved. I've heard other stories that there was some attempt to kill these feral wild men, but they still exist, even today. And I'm not talking about some ends-of-days extremists who took the woods. I mean feral, completely wild men, their own language, living underground sometimes. What they mean by underground is there's tons of caves, and almost everything paranormal that happens in the Appalachians are connected to these caves. They said, we don't go in the woods at night. During the day, we make sure to stay on the trails. Sometimes you'll smell it, that putrid smell. At night, you'll hear them hollering, supposedly inbred. The locals, locals around here know what happened to Dennis Martin. He was snatched by one of the feral wild men. It's not uncommon for people to go missing here. Now, they're normally found, but you'd be surprised on the number of children that simply disappear. The FBI has covered it up for years. Where do you think the movie The Hills Have Eyes come from? It's true. I hear them from time to time, disturbing sounds. They all live up and down the mountains here in national parks and forests. Here's another one from, uh, from Reddit as well. Oh, maybe not. I think that is it. No, it's the same one. Oh, why did I highlight that? Oh, because of the the conversations. The the conversations in that in that same that Reddit one I just read to you, they talk about like people that have gone down there and just, you know, went to the Smoky Mountains for a little bit and sure enough they heard or more likely smelled something, not a skunk, but something so putrid and horrid that they got out of there. There's another person who says that um they were taught they were told about the wild men from their grandparents, and they said it was part of the Native American legends that are there, but his, their grandparents were convinced they were real, and they're still out there to this day. They are other people talking about their family settling in that area. They've been there for since nearly the beginning of settlers in, in America, and they all know about the wild men, and they try to avoid them, and hopefully the wild men will avoid them. So incredibly bizarre, creepy, wild men, feral men stories are a plenty on the Appalachian Trail. But as terrifying as it is to think about like bumping into one of these feral wild people, whatever you want to call them, it's not paranormal enough. So let's move on from there. Uh, you know, let's all just agree feral people. 
they suck. Don't let them touch your kid. Don't let them take your kids. Don't get too close to them. They smell that bad. There's a reason for that. Stay away from them. All righty. The first one up in the paranormal side of things is the Spearfinger Witch. And this is a legend that's a Cherokee legend, but it is widespread all around that area, all around the Appalachians. It's a, like I said, it's a Cherokee legend. It's kind of become almost like an urban legend to the kids and teens that live in the area. But there are a lot of reports of people seeing or most often hearing Spearfinger in the mountains to this day. People say, I thought it was just something to scare kids when, when, you know, like bedtime story to scare kids or around a campfire story. But I swear I saw Spearfinger. Okay, so what is Spearfinger? Well, her Cherokee name, look, I'm going to get this part wrong. If you think I'm mispronouncing Appalachian right now, just wait a second. Her Cherokee name is Utlunta, Utlunta, which means Spearfinger, or sometimes called Nun Yunu E, which means stone dress, kind of. Terrible. I apologize to every Native American listening to this. They said that she would appear as an old woman with stony colored skin. And how she got her name Spearfinger is, well, she has a long obsidian spear in place of one of her fingers on her right hand. So, Kurt's tip of the day. Quick giveaway. If you run into an old woman on the Appalachian Trail, have her show you her fingers. Don't let her get too close. Say, show me your fingers, old lady. If she's got a spear finger, that spear finger, stay the hell away from her. Why? I'll keep going. So that stony colored skin, well, it's not just stony colored. They said that skin is so strong that no weapons can penetrate it, like X-Men style kind of thing. And if she got close to you, she would use that spear finger and stab you while you're bleeding out. She'd remove your liver and eat it. See? Keep the old ladies away from you on the Appalachian Trail. Now, they say that she has the power to lift or move large boulders to trap or confuse people on the trails. It's said she is most often seen on the old Tennessee side of the Chihauhe Mountain Trail. Also, she's seen most at the north shore of Lake Fontana on the North Norton Creek Trail. And also, she's seen at the remnants of the bridge in Whiteside in Jackson County, North Carolina, which is far to the south, uh, close to the Georgia border. That seems to be where the most of the sightings of Spearfinger are. But again, tons of sightings of Spearfingers. Like I said, not only sightings, but they hear her. So what do they hear? Well, they hear a woman, an old woman, singing almost like a nursery rhyme in Cherokee. So again, if you hear some creepy nursery rhyme in Cherokee, I'm not going to read it to you because I'll get every word wrong. It's about wanting to eat your liver. Like basically like, I'm an old woman. Here's my spear finger. I'm going to eat your liver. So there you go. Uh, it's not the words at all, but you know, you get the, you get the gist. Now there's a place called, uh, it's known as Thunder Mountain. And that's where she's most often seen in autumn. So if you guys are by any of these things, the Chihaui Mountain Trail, the North Shore of Lake Fontana on the Norton Creek Trail, the remnants of the bridge in Whiteside in Jackson County, North Carolina, the Thunder Mountain area, especially in autumn. Definitely don't go on the Thunder Mountain Railroad with her. Uh, Depending on where you get your info, she may also be a shapeshifter like a skinwalker, but 
that spear finger is always present. So lots to unpack there, like a lot to unpack there. Now there's more to this legend and there was something alongside Spearfinger. It's Stone Man. Ah. Uh, now, he, Stone Man would fight her, but the main points of this legend are what I've told you already. The Cherokee, they killed her. And then Stone Man, who, fun fact, could only die by the sight of seven menstruating women. How they figured that one out, I want to know. Like, how did they go... Did like one menstruating woman stand in front of Stone Man? He was like, "Ew!" And they're like, "Oh, oh, oh!" There's we got something here. P bring another one out. Oh, two, not liking that. Keep going. Three. Oh, here we go. Uh, but basically, what they did, they had seven menstruating women sneak up on him, each one weakening him more and more with their menstruation, until he fell to his knees and they burnt him alive. So you don't have to worry about Stone Man. Oh, ah. But keep your eye out for an old woman or animals with spear fingers. You know, they seem bad is what I'm saying. Weird one, right? That It gets weird. It gets wackier. Don't worry. All right, let's move on from spear finger to the legend of the budgem. Or as it's also known, and hold on tight because it's got a lot of names coming here. The budgem is also known as Nobby in Cleveland County, Budgem, most of the areas, Wooly Booger in the Drexel area, Wampus Cat in eastern parts of North Carolina, the Green Swamp Beast in Brunswick County, Turtle Man in Cedar Island. You guys got to figure out. He looks, when you hear about the Budgem, you're going to be like, Turtle Man? Most of these aren't really good, but Turtle Man? Come on. All right, let's keep going. There's Monkey Man. And finally, the Chickly Cuddly. That's right, the Chickly Cuddly. All right, this one's tough because eyewitnesses never really get a good look at the Budgem. But to me, to Kurt, Kurt here, the Budgem sounds like a Bigfoot. Stop giving him a bunch of stupid names. It's a Bigfoot. But locals there swear that he's different from the Bigfoot, so maybe I should watch my mouth. He's described as being about eight feet tall, a mixture of both man and beast with thick, shaggy, gray hair that covers his body, but he has a human-like face, which is never described as handsome. All right, Kurt here. Look, that last bit just seems mean. There is no need to say that he's ugly, too. You don't have to be like, oh, and oh, and he wasn't handsome at all either. Uh, just, all right, back off on the budgem here. Now, like Bigfoot, he's usually spotted at a distance across, like a, a big distance across from like ravines, on cliffs, on rocky outcroppings. Like Bigfoot, his calls or screams are heard mostly at night. And from everything I can find, he has most recently been spotted in the Balsam Mountains. That seems to be his lair. Now, that's a range that adjoins the Blue Ridge Mountains in the southwestern Haywood County. He's thought to live in caves. See, told you, caves are everywhere in all of these stories. Uh, in that region, he's thought to live in caves. And just like Bigfoot, the Budgem loves shiny objects and the ladies. Now, early stories about Budgems were mostly like women that were bathing in like creeks or rivers. And they were like, oh my God, there's a Budgem staring at me from behind the trees. And then you kind of wander away. So Bigfoot-ish like. And supposedly the Budgem collects natural gemstones in the area and keeps them in his cave and has basically like a treasure trove of natural gemstones. 
All right, here we go. Here's part of the legend. <laughs> the Bujum protects his gemstones by storing them at the bottom of stone jugs. He fills the jugs with pertinent juice, or what is commonly known as moonshine, although some sites say it's not moonshine at all, but the elixir of life. That's right, the very elixir of life that keeps you alive forever. It's not in Florida. It's not in Cuba. It's in a Bujum cave, in a clay jar, clay jug. Now, even if a gem seeker should happen to find one of his many jugs, no self-respecting mountaineer would dare waste this coveted liquid by pouring it on the ground. They would drink the contents until empty, which would then be followed by a long, deep sleep. They would get so drunk, basically, they would, you know, fall asleep. Then the Bujum would return, retrieve his gems, leaving the thief with nothing but a splitting headache when awoke. It gets worse, people. Here's some more nonsense about pertinent juice from the Bujum Info website. All righty. <clears throat> Bujum Info website. Let's scroll down. We don't have to go to the Urban Dictionary definition. Here we go. He acquired the name the Bujum. The Bujum also found jugs of the sweetest tasting drink in the known world. Pertinent juice. Pertinent juice, that's P-E-R-T space N-I-N juice, had what is called El Elixir de la Vie. French for the elixir of life. Pertinent juice is the reason the Bujum still exists today. Some of the gems have been found within the last 30 to 40 years, but I will not disclose this location in which they are currently stored. Pertinent juice, which some have been found in the balsam caves, is reportedly the most valuable items on the Mountain Folk Exchange. I had to look that up. It's like the black market for hillbillies. Now, estimates pu estimates put it ranging from $50,000 to $217,536.51. 51 cents. It's important. So the Bujum does still exist. And there have been reports of sightings of him, but none have been proven. Within that last decade, there have been some speculation within the hillbilly community, their words, not mine, whether or not the Elixir de la Vie has immortal granting abilities. Not one soul has dared to drink it, though, due to its sacred properties. One thing for sure is the Bujum means no harm and is outspokenly against bigotry. Oh, my God, there's so much to unpack here. All right, so apparently there's a black market for hillbillies on the web, dark web, where you can buy some pertinent juice, and somebody has spent at least $217,536.51, but not one soul has dared drink it due to its sacred properties. Okay, I'm not done yet. Uh, well, yes, I am. That's It gets even, it, that's weird enough. I'm going, that's farthest down that rabbit hole I need to go. That got weird, right? Nah, I'm not going to go any deeper into that bosom. All right, let's keep going. Let's move on to the, the Greenbrier, oh my goodness, let's move on to the Greenbrier restaurant in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Hold on, I need some pertinent juice. Let me uh, let me take a quick swig of my pertinent juice. There we go. The Greenbrier Restaurant in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. It's said to host one of the most famous ghosts in the whole area. All right, here's here's that time, that old familiar time that I tell oh so much, the tale that I tell oh so much. 
Shortly after opening as a lodge in 1939, a young woman named Lydia, who lived at the lodge, left. she was left at the altar. So she gets so despondent, she runs back to the lodge. She can't believe her fiancé leaves her at the altar. She runs back to the lodge, runs up the stairs, throws a rope over it, sadly hangs herself still in her wedding dress. Days later, they say, she got her revenge, though, because her fiancé's body was found. It appeared he was killed by a mountain lion, but we all know it was Lydia. Oop, that's the wrong one. Nope. Eh, that's fine enough. There we go. We all know it was Lydia. She got revenge on that fiancé. All right, cut to today. Diners and patrons still see Lydia to this day. Most commonly, Lydia is seen on the staircase in a white dress. Workers have also noticed food items being knocked off shelves in the pantry area. Now, look, I've checked out the website for the Greenbrier website, or Greenbrier Restaurant in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. This food looks amazing. Absolutely amazing. Not only that, you can get a Lydia Martini there, and they have reserves of Lydia wine. So if you're in the area... Check it out. At the very least, you're going to get a great meal. At the most, you get to see Lydia. Um, but I hate that that tale as old as time of a jilted lover left at the altar that commits suicide and becomes a ghost and is, you know, doomed to repeat her mistakes forever. That's it's just it's just sad how often that happens, is what I'm saying. Alrighty, from there, let's go up to the Devil's Courthouse. In Whiteside Mountain, North Carolina, and sorry, North Carolina locals, I'm calling it debunk time. Now, the Devil's Courthouse is an old settler legend nonsense BS, basically. Basically, when the settlers got to this area, they noticed, hey, look at that rock face. It kind of looks like a courthouse. Kurt here? No, it doesn't. And they said, oh, well, you know what that is? They made up this tale about the devil using this area as his own courthouse. Despite a lot, and I mean a lot, of urban legend myth crap that I found online, I couldn't find one thing to say that this place is even remotely haunted. Urban legend nonsense from old settlers. Moving on. All right, this next one is another familiar story. I, I, let's see what I told you when I was talking about the Appalachians have just about everything paranormal. They really do. I mean, you name it, they've got it. Orbs, a ton. They got orbs aplenty. They got who's it's and what's it galore. Budgems, they got the gemstones. Pertinent juice, chug a lug. I couldn't think of anything that rhymed, sorry. Uh, but anyhow, here's another familiar story. It's the hitchhiking woman ghost story. Her name is Lucy. She's seen by a lot of people, and I mean a lot of travelers. Now, it's in the Roaring Fork Motor Trail, and she's just seen hitchhiking. They see a woman in white. Oh, I, actually, nope, she's not in white. I apologize. They see a woman hitchhiking. Now, she doesn't seem to get in the cars and then disappear like, you know, like a lot of them do. Although she is seen, like, hitchhiking, and then when they go, what the crap? There was a woman hitchhiking. They look back, and she's gone. It's, she's that kind of hitchhiking ghost. Now, um, of course, they made a totally BS backstory they just made it up for no reason for this one, too, as is the, you know, like the want to do nowadays. All right, here it is. Legend has it that Lucy died in a cabin fire around 1909. Kurt here, proof? No, none. About a year later, a man named Foster. Kurt here, proof? No, none. 
He was in the market for a wife. He spotted a beautiful woman in the woods and shared his horse with her. He found it odd that Lucy was barefoot on a cold winter's night. Apparently abnormal warmth. What? Uh, it doesn't doesn't matter. Uh, she was uh, He was enraptured by her beauty. He fell in love with her. When he went to seek her parents' approval, they informed him, What? Lucy passed last year. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. A completely unnecessary backstory, none of which is true for a very cool ghost. I couldn't find anything about a fire. I'm sure there were fires. There were fires all over the place. I'm going to talk about fires in a minute. But couldn't find anything about a guy named Forrester, a foster with a woman named Lucy. I couldn't find anything about, like, he bought a wife. There was nothing. None of this was true. Ghosts are cool enough. They don't need a made-up backstory. All right, up next is another one that I have a feeling is made up, another urban legend. But since I can't prove that it's fake, I'll add it to the show. It's the Lacante Inn or Lacante Lodge. Lacante Lodge or Lacante Lodge? I don't know. I'm sure I'm saying it wrong both ways. Now, the only haunting info I can find, and it's the same on every site. It's all regurgitated from the same crap. There are several reports of people seeing a little girl at 3.33 in the morning at the foot of their bed. As soon as they wake up, boom, she's gone. Could be true, I guess, but it just seems kind of fishy to me that it's only that little bit, nothing else. No, like, people that, like, leave stuff on the Lacante Lodge website to be like, hey, look, it's just true, I saw her too. No, it's the, that's it. Every website says, there are several reports of people seeing a little girl at 3.33 in the morning at the foot of their bed. As soon as they wake up, she is gone. Boom, done. So, I don't know. No details. Seems fishy. It's over anyways. Let's move on to the last one on this edition. Now, this one started as a logging cabin in the early 1900s. Sadly, it has a horrendous history. Dozens of workers were maimed or killed in logging accidents, and if that wasn't bad enough, and trust me, that's bad enough, logging accidents, always going to be brutal and bloody. But if that wasn't bad enough, there are also train wrecks here too. Yeah, train wrecks, plural. Now, since then, people see or hear people, basically they hear men screaming, most often, they feel as if they're being watched from something that just passed the tree line. Now, I get that, you know, like, you know, if you go to a place that's got a history of, like, a spooky history, and people are talking about, like, men that were maimed in logging accidents or people, men and women that were killed in trains, I get that you're going to be so spooked up that you would imagine being watched from the woods. But regulars in this area that are accustomed to those woods and those stories and are there every day, they say, no, this is different. There is something to that. You are being watched by something, and they don't know what it is. It's very intense. Hunters, hunters that know the woods, know the feeling of being watched by animals in the woods, say, this is different. This area is different. And look, there are plenty more stories, especially around that area, around the Lacante Lodge area. Uh, there are a ton of stuff of cabins being burned down and people still seeing people walking through there. There are tons, and I mean absolutely tons, 
of orb stories, which, as you know, I just kind of throw out. But some of the orb stories I almost included in this one. And then I was like, nah, I like the stories I chose. I chose some good ones. It's almost an hour. This is what I want. But some of the orb stories aren't just your, you know, your typical, like, I took a photo. Look at this orb. That's dust. You're outside. Or a bug. No, there's some really weird orb stories about, like, faces being seen in the orbs. And not, like, pareidolia kind of faces, but it looks like a face. Like, they, that picture is of a face right freaking there. But um, it seems like that whole area has a really horrendous backstory of cabins burning down, of people being burnt alive, and they're still being seen to this day. So, yeah, as I said, with any episode that I do, there's a ton of more stories. Then for this one, it's no different. There are a ton of ton more stories from this from the mountains. I mean, the Appalachians have a bit of everything. UFOs. Oh my God, they got UFOs. I didn't even touch on the UFO stuff yet. Um, I'm going to do that on a future episode, but anything you can think of paranormal or cryptid, they're seeing it down there. And and rightfully so. I, I get it that, you know, it's an insanely huge, treacherous, mountainous region that hasn't been touched by man for the most part. And I get that, you know, the mountains alone are naturally treacherous. I, I get that. But there is something more going on here. And there's a reason that so many people have so many varying paranormal encounters here. Like, it's crazy. The feral humans, though, are still the scariest thing that I've talked about on this episode. Because I fear crazy people way more than I fear ghosts. A hundred percent more. That uh, missing people from the National Parks episode um, that I did, that told me enough that I that that something insane is going on in national parks and I'm way better at glamping than I am at like rugged backwoods camping whatever you want to call it It, it's weird and I also got to say I am going to go back to the budgems for a second I'm going back to the budgems for a second I don't care what anyone says if I find a clay jar filled with gemstones and some strange liquid here's what I'm going to do I'm going to pour that liquid into another container. I'm not going to pour it into the ground. I'm going to pour it into another container. I'm going to take all the gemstones. And only after I get that liquid tested, maybe by a couple of different labs to make sure it's not like, you know, Sasquatch pee or something, then maybe, yeah, I'll take a shot of that liquid. I'll take a shot of pertinent juice. Uh, But when I do... I'm hoping that someone's going to like walk up to me and be like, you chose wisely. Like, that's what I'm hoping. And not like, I can't believe you drank that Sasquatch pee. That's, that's Bujum pee. And you just chugged that down. I know I'm being very hillbilly-ish right now. And I apologize, but that's all I can think about. And there were a couple of stories from like, sounded like from, from, you know, Kenneth from uh, 30 Rock, you know, whenever they talk about his hometown, a couple of the stories sounded just like, you know, like, that possum dung got up and bit me. And I'm like, I don't understand anything this guy's saying on YouTube. So I can't use any of it. And if I if I post it on here, it would seem like I'm being really mean to Southern people. And I'm not. I love Southern people. I love Southern food. I love everything about the Appalachian Trail. Hopefully I'm saying that right. It's not Appalachian, Kurt. Appalachian Trail. Um, 
But there's something going on. Something big and something paranormal and something scary. But that about does it for this week's episode. I hope you guys like this one. Like I said, there's plenty more to come. There's a whole UFO thing that I didn't even touch on. But until then, once again, I'm your host, Kurt Zambig, and this has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac. Swish in the drop box. He stalks ass in the glitch. Zwack.